Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of the My Ely Story Podcast, where we get a chance to learn incredible stories from some of the fascinating people who call my favorite town in the world, Ely, Minnesota, home. A big thanks to the Ely Tourism Bureau for supporting this podcast. You can share your feedback by emailing tourism at ely.org. You can follow on Facebook and Instagram at Visit Ely MN and on the internet at ely.org. My guest today is Francis Fitzgerald. He's a Vietnam veteran, former Ely area resort owner, conservationist, and now he's an author. His book is called Combat to Conservation, A Marine's Journey Through Darkness into Nature's Light. Please enjoy. I'm Francis Fitzgerald, and this is my Ely story. Hello, sir. Hello, Brett. How are you? I'm very good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Awesome. Doing it's great. so it's good to have you here. I've been uh, I've been wanting to have this conversation with you for a long time. Ever since I I read your book, you've got uh-huh. this great book out, Combat to Conservation: A Marine's Journey Through Darkness and Into Nature's Light. Uh, I got to say, it's a phenomenal book. I just read it for the second time. Did you really? Uh, getting right. ready for this, and I just I'm even more in love with it now. Just uh, your story of of, uh, you know, growing up on a farm in Southern Minnesota and your, your, uh, experiences in Vietnam and coming back from that. And then your sort of rebirth into uh, life in the North woods, a, a fascinating journey. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, yeah. and congratulations on the book and, uh, and on everything that you've done, you've really accomplished a lot over the course of your life. And, um, so just to kind of jump right into things, if you can give just a little bit of background, yeah, honestly, I would love you to just tell the whole story from your book because it's it's such a great story and it really encapsulates the story of your life. Um, but talk a little bit about your background, your upbringing, growing up on a farm uh, near yep. Rochester. Yeah, I grew up um, on two little farms. Uh, I was born on a larger farm south of Rochester and we lived there, I believe, until I was oh, five years old, maybe. I do have a lot of memories of that farm. And then we moved into town, into Rochester, and this would have been the late 50s. Um, and Rochester was right at the time where they were just really starting to expand. Sure. Um, Mom and Dad bought a little house that was just being built right on the edge of town, which is now far from the edge of town. Yeah. In fact, it's right across the street from John Marshall High School. Okay. If you know Rochester. Sure, yeah. And uh, that was being built at the time. I remember going over there and, and um, you know, we'd... we'd ride our 20-inch bikes all over the sand piles and everything when the school was being built. We stayed in there, uh, started school at St. Pius. Um, and then when I was fourth grade, we moved back out north of Rochester onto another uh, small farm. And that essentially, that's where I grew up. And, and um, I, was, I lived there uh, until after high school. And then again, a little bit after I got back uh, from the Marine Corps. And then later in my life, uh, mom and dad moved into town and I moved out and spent the rest of my time in Rochester, uh, actually on that same little farm oh, until nice. coming to Ely, um, which uh, I came up here in the winter of 91. Okay. Is, so was this a working farm when you were growing up? Yeah, both of them were. The first one was big and I missed out on the, the work the work part of that one. Darn. I'm, I'm number six of seven kids uh-huh. and two older brothers. Uh, and so they... They were they caught the brunt of most of that work. It was a dairy farm, okay. Um, and I can still remember them complaining about 
you know, all the uh, odds and ends and, and hardships that they had to go through. And uh, I just remember the fun part of that. You know, yeah. I remember waking up and, and watching them go into the barn. And I had, I had basically just had the run of the place. And, yeah. And so that was really, that was my first kind of outdoors was on that farm. And, and then even when we went into Rochester, you know, we were literally on the edge of town. So a half a block away were, you know, woods and cornfields and, um, you know, hills and, and all that stuff. And, and so it wasn't really like we lived in town. Um, but my sister uh, likes to say that those four or five years in town was, it somewhat civilized me before, <laughs> before we went back out into the country. Kept you from being totally free. Yeah, from, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And now that, uh, that little farm, in fact, I even wrote about that in the, in the book, but that little farm now is, you know, has been all subdivided and yeah. you, you would, you know, you'd never know it. Um, and Rochester is well past, you know, the city limits are even well past that. Right. Uh, which is, you know, that, that's, that's part of it. That's I how guess. it goes. Yeah. 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 No, I, I grew up kind of in a similar area, not on a farm, mm-hmm. but in uh, Savage, south of the Twin Cities. Okay. And it was a tiny little town at the time when I was growing up. And you go back there now, and I, I remember when I moved away to college, it became one of the fastest growing suburbs in the Twin Cities. Now you'd have no idea that there was, that it was once a, a small town. little town with, yeah. you know, surrounded by, you know, yeah. rural areas. When I was gone, um, those couple of years that I was gone, Rochester just went nuts. And I came back and... uh Apache Mall, which was the big mall area in Rochester, had been built, you know, and all the stores had basically moved from downtown Rochester out to the mall yeah. and everything. And and that probably, those years from, you know, 69, 70, 71 in there really changed Rochester. And, and um, you know, now, my gosh, now you get on there and you you can hardly tell where all the outlying towns start and end, you know, it's right. all one big uh and that's growth, you know. It, it's good. It's uh, it's still uh, it's not the quiet little town it used to be when we were kids. You know, we'd run around all hours of the day and night, and it yep. didn't matter. And um, you know, like a lot of places now, you probably don't do that anymore. Don't For you? sure. That um, that I guess that's that's growth. Yeah. So you mentioned in the book that um, your family they weren't hunters. Nope. But you. You found an interest in that. What's yeah. your, what do you think kind of led you to to an interest in that? I just I just think it's that whole outside thing. Um, I was just always interested in anything outside and in critters and you know what what was making this happen and what was making this happen and and um, you know no dad never hunted. I I don't honestly I don't think he had the time. Sure, he always, he only farmed and then he always had a job while he farmed. Okay. Um, and seven kids, you know, mom was a stay-at-home mom. And, and uh, I don't, you know, he, I know for a fact, he, you know, he was not against hunting, but he just, you know, literally never had the time to hunt and fish and everything. I bet. And I just, I think I just naturally kind of got pulled that way. Um, and then, you know, you get a little bit older and you, you know, junior high and high school and some of your buddies have the same interests. And mm-hmm. I think it just evolved that way without really uh, knowing at the time that, man, this was going to be a lifetime uh, you know, pursuit. Yeah. Uh, and so you were, were you in high school? You got your first recurve bow? I was a freshman in high school. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, bow hunting, I figured was probably, um, not easier, but easier in some ways because I knew it would go over a little bit better with mom. Okay. 
Um, she was, you know, back then there wasn't such a thing as being anti-gun, but she was scared to death of, of firearms. Okay. And I honestly don't know why. Hmm. Um, but that's all I always remember. She was absolutely scared to death. Dad had an old shotgun and an old 22 rifle that he had to keep down in the barn because they, you know, mom wouldn't let him Can't come in the house with it. Yeah. Him. Wow. Um, and I just, uh, that was a fact of life. So I think I just figured I'd, you know, slowly sort of get this bull thing going. And, and I think it would be a little easier for her to digest it. Yeah. She never really had a, she never really acknowledged it one way or the other. Yeah. You know, I think, but, but it was, it never would have flown or flown if I would have come in with, you know, wanted to go duck hunting or something like that. Okay. With a shotgun. That, that would have been dead in the water, so to speak. So the, so the bow was more palatable and definitely uh, more palatable. I, I try to imagine now, um, you know, using modern compound bows yeah. for hunting and the efficiency yeah. with those to use a recurve bow. That was the, basically the first hunting tool that I had was a recurve yeah. bow. I never, never took down a deer with it. I couldn't even imagine trying to take down a deer with a recurve bow. It, um, but back then that was, that was the option, you know, yeah, you didn't have yeah. all these other options. And I, I have gone back to that now slowly really? over the last few years. Um, cause I still love to bow hunt and, and um, I still shoot with a compound, but I have two. In fact, I have the original Indian bow that I bought that freshman year. And um, I started shooting a 50-pound recurve again last summer that a friend of mine gave me because I broke my old bear recurve that I had bought, that first one. Wow. A limb snapped on me, and, and he had the identical bow and gave it to me a couple of years ago. Nice. So I started shooting that. But it's just now, it, it's so simple. It mm-hmm. seems so simple compared to all the hardware and the contraptions and everything that we're used to when we shoot compound yeah. bows. And it's just it's uh, it's just a pure, simple, instinctive way to hunt, and I you know I love it. Yeah, I, there's something real special in that. In yeah, that simplicity and light. My gosh, you know you don't even you know you pick up my my compound and then you go pick that thing up and it's just there's nothing there. Yeah, you know, that, yeah, that's the beauty of that. That's great. So you went from, you know, sort of having the run of the wilderness and and learning to hunt and, and having your own adventures out there. And then uh, 1969, decided to join the Marines, which I feel like in <laughs> 1969, there wasn't a lot of mystery of where you were going to No, there wasn't up. really. Um, but, you know, you, an 18-year-old kid doesn't think way down the road. Yeah. Um, you're you're invincible. Um, you're up for a challenge, and and I, it's not something that um, you know I I thought a lot about, and I don't mean that derogatory, but you know it was just one day I I, I was downtown and I walked by the post office and saw some recruiting posters and went in there, and um, for some reason I remember walking down that big stone hallway and you know the old post office used to be so mm-hmm. big and impressive and and walking by the the army recruiter the navy recruiter the coast guard recruiter the air force recruiter and way down the end of the hall was was the marine corps office and i just walked in there and i think the thing that probably did it was um there were two marines in there there was a sergeant or a staff sergeant and a gunnery sergeant and they were super low key, which I don't think people even believe me when I say that, but no pressure at all. Um, they just, you know, they let me snoop around a little bit, looked around a little bit, got up and one of them got up and talked to me for a little bit. And, and, um, I, by that point in time, I was very serious, um, 
about I wanted to become a game warden and mm-hmm. and I uh you know left left that Marine Corps recruiting office came home and dove into it with both hands I I did my I I, I did my googling in the Encyclopedia Britannica <laughs> yep. for the next for old the next, school Google yeah <laughs> right for the next couple of weeks and um you know just read everything I could get my hands on about the Marine Corps and the more I got into it um I think the more I I, I appreciated it and that's basically all it took you know i um yeah you know those days the the war was in the living room as people say you know it was being broadcast and everything but you just don't you know i oh i thought about it but um it it wasn't something that was you know really really weighing heavily on me and and uh they had a what they called the delayed enlistment program at the time and i signed up and had a 33 days, I think is what it was, before I had to report. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so that gave me a little bit of time to to adjust and, uh, you know, do a few things. Well, I went out west, like, like you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, but yeah, I, I, I just think um, I have absolutely no regrets. I, I, I've said that before that, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. But um, for, for where I was at the time, I, I think I needed that. Um, I wanted to go to college. I knew I wasn't ready to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew I couldn't afford to go to college. Um, and so that was the other thing. I thought, oh, heck, I'll, you know, I'll get the GI Bill. I'll mm-hmm. come back, go to school, have the military behind me uh, as, as as far as a resume for being a coming and game warden. And, you know, I had it all, I had it all laid out. Yeah. And, and it almost worked. Almost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what a what an amazing experience, and and at a time you know such a tumultuous, such a a brutal war that was going on over there, and so you're sort of thrust into it at 18 years old. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, you know, most of the most of the guys I was around were all 18, 19. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them even a little bit younger than that. Yeah. That, that snuck in somehow, and in fact, um, I remember in boot camp. We had a guy, a, a, a kid, obviously still, that was 21, and everybody called him the old man. <laughs> you know, he yep. had gone to two years of college or yeah. something, and just, I, I don't think he got drafted. I, I think he enlisted, but wow. he was the old man in the platoon. Wow. And he was 21 years old. That's hard to believe. Yeah. Yeah. And he was to us. Yeah. You know, he was like 21, you know. <laughs> and I look at 21-year-olds now, and I'm like, look at these little kids. Oh, yeah. Can't yeah. imagine. <laughs> no. But that's that's the way it was, you know. So it wasn't that it wasn't that I was the only one that was that age. That's mm-hmm. you know. And so you, I, I think you mentioned the first time you'd been on a plane. Was yeah, flying out to San Diego. <laughs> yeah, wow. I had been in a small plane. Uh, my oldest brother uh, was a priest out in Western Minnesota, mm-hmm. and he had a pilot's license. That's what he oh, liked right, to do. Right. And so I had been up in a little Cessna one fifty a couple times with him, um, but that you know that was it. And yeah, the first airliner, the you know jet that I was on was from Minneapolis to San Diego, on the way to boot camp. So what was what was the reaction from you mentioned your older brother? Uh, what was his name? I have two older brothers, Tom and Joe. So, and so your oldest brother, who was the priest, yep. Um, you mentioned having a really strong relationship with him yeah. in, in the older years. And yeah. So what was kind of the rea- what was the reaction from him? What was the reaction from your parents uh, um, to you enlisting in the Marines? Yeah. Um, my brother just rolled with the punch. Yeah. You know, and I think he probably knew, um, uh, you know, like I said, that I probably wasn't ready to, to go to school, you know, 
to go to college. I was a good student, but I just mentally, I wasn't, I wasn't there. And, um, my mom and dad freaked out and I, I did a really crappy thing to my little sister because, um, and I don't think I even talked about that in the book. Um, that summer after I graduated and after I had enlisted and hadn't told mom and dad yet, they were going to go on vacation and mom and dad never went on vacation. Hmm. I mean, nobody did back then, but they never, they were going to take a little trip with my oldest brother, with brother Tom and my sister who was in high school at the time. And they were going to drive up to the UP and just Mm -hmm. explore around and come back going to be gone like five or six days. (laughs) So I wrote a letter to mom and dad telling him that I didn't listen to the Marine Corps. And I gave it to my sister. I told her, don't give it to them until you're at least a couple hours away. Oh, boy. Which was really not a, (laughs) you know, now that I look back, you know, I'm like, man, what a dirty thing to do to your sister. And she still gives me grief about that. I bet. I have the letter. Wow. Um, Years and years and years later, she gave me back that letter that I think mom and dad had given it back to her that day, literally, probably. Yeah. So I missed the... Uh, you know, the, the original trauma that probably did take place. And I know it was hard. Now you look back at that and, you know, like you just said, you know, I, I look back at, at, at my kids and I think, my gosh, I can't see them at 18 or 19 years old doing that. And so I know that's what my mom and dad were probably going through, but you know, myself at the time, you don't think about that. Yeah. And I, and I imagine, you know, like you said, a war that's in the living room, Yeah, that it's, it's in, it's every on night. the TV every Walter night, Cronkite. Walter Cronkite's talking about exactly. it every night and, and they yeah. know, they know what you're likely destined for. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, it was, uh, I'm not, I'm not proud of the way I handled that. I guess <laughs> it was easier for me, I'm sure. Um, uh, but my poor little sister took the brunt of that one. I'm sure. <laughs> so I still owe her. <laughs> that debt will never be repaid. No, not even yeah. close. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you go through your training, your uh, Camp Pendleton? Um, yeah, you go through boot camp in San Diego. Mm-hmm. MCRD is right in, literally right in San Diego, right next to the airport. And in fact, at the time, <clears throat> there were so many uh Marines and training and in boot camp and everything, they were running them through like crazy. And they had set up extra great big wall tents out along the fence at the edge of the uh, Marine Corps recruiting depot, right along one of the the runways of San Diego Airport. So 24-7, you're hearing these stupid jets take off. You know, and you're in a tent. There's no way or no escape. It's just bizarre, but that's how... You know, that's how many people they were training yeah. at the time and everything. So that was a boot camp. That's 12 weeks. And then um, I went to Camp Pendleton for um, advanced training and then did advanced infantry training. Um, and then I had applied for and gotten into uh, recon school and uh, went back to a different part of Camp Camp Pendleton is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and went back to a different part of Pendleton for recon school right, um, right before I went to staging and went over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it was, I, if I recall correctly, it was about May 1970 yep, yep. where you ended up in Vietnam. Yep. I don't remember the exact date, um, but early May, like the first week of May um, in 1970. I, I had a month leave um, right before that because I hadn't been home since I went to boot camp. Um, and I think that leave was late March, um, you know, into April a little bit. And then you come back and you go through what you call staging um, which is just if, if if units are ready to get shipped out wherever, um, it's just all the logistical 
nightmares of the, of that. And and then you finish staging. We finish staging anyway in Okinawa mm-hmm. on the way over, and then that's the final kind of stopover before. And so, farm kid from Rochester, you know, growing up with Minnesota winters and and Minnesota summers where eighty degrees is sweltering. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you step right. off that plane. I think you described it as walking into a blast furnace. Yeah, that's the that's the first impression. Yeah, um, just just hot. that. Yeah, hot and humid and and of course, I mean, you get off a plane, you're in full gear. Yeah, you, know, you got everything with you, and and, uh, and then you go out and you stand on a tarmac. You know, while everything's getting processed, and um, but I don't know how hot it was, but it was hot, yeah, and, and muggy, and that's what you've got. And you know, Southern Minnesota can be muggy, but man, not not like that. Yeah, yeah, you know, that was that was the the Southeast Asian sun, a little little hotter than Minnesota. <laughs> I bet, <laughs> yeah. I bet, yeah. And then, of course, the real the new reality <clears throat> of of being in a war zone that I imagine that hits pretty fast. It doesn't take long. You know, you're, um, you know, obviously you don't know what to expect. Even with all the training you've gone through, um, that first night you get, uh, everybody's, it, everybody goes a different direction. Everybody gets processed. And I ended up going a completely different direction. But that first night, everybody's still together and you just go in these big barracks before you're issued, even, uh, issued your m16 and that in that night we got mortared and which is you know we find out later is a, like an everyday occurrence yeah. there in, in da nang at the airbase you know they it's just a harassment kind of thing and yep. but you know <laughs> boy that was the end of the world the first time you hear that coming in i bet so all of us boots in country you know jump out of bed and kind of look at each other and like you know is this the end of the world or what and you know none of us have a weapon yet or anything and and we're all just kind of standing there. And this is the middle of the night. And I remember yeah. a, a, a staff sergeant coming in and just kind of shaking his head. And, and you know, I, I, he said something like, go back to bed, ladies. It's just harassment. It happens every night. You'll get used to it or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> How do you like, get used to it? Here we go. Yeah. But I think that was the first part. Uh, I think that was one of the reasons why, and I, and I, I mentioned that, I once I got out in country, um, in assigned to a unit and out in, in what we call the bush, I actually felt more comfortable out in the bush than in those back rear areas that were getting continually harassed with mortars and rockets and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a much more visible target. Oh, sure. yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, and everybody thinks I, you know, I'm not, but there were some of us that actually felt safer, if if that's the right word. Um, yeah, out of out of that little limelight, you know. Those- Do you feel like part of that, that sort of safety that you were feeling in the bush that some of that maybe came from the amount of time growing up that you spent just in the woods and you know i i think about that a lot and i thought of that a, a lot when i was writing um and i still do i i i think they're connected mm-hmm. uh, yeah i really do i um because I'll, I'll tell you there were kids there were kids from the big cities that were totally uncomfortable Anywhere outside of a of, of a fire base or yeah. a rear area, I mean, it just was so different. And then there were kids that, you know, the I, I had a, a I got to know a kid that was pretty. Uh, I think he was my age. He was eighteen, but it looked like he was about fourteen. Mm-hmm. And he was from the Appalachians and and um, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And we would have called him a hillbilly or ridge runner or something like that, yeah. you know. And he was, you know, he was one of those like me. He was totally, totally comfortable. You know, he'd rather be out 
in the jungle or the rice paddies and, you know, sitting, a sitting duck on a perimeter of a, a fire base or something yeah, like that. Yeah. So I think it, yeah, I think it does have a lot to do with that. That's pretty interesting. And so your job was basically just, you're on the move, <laughs> you're in the bush, uh, recon, ambush, patrols, yeah, day the, in, day out. The the first couple months, um, I was with a with headquarters of the Seventh Marines, and that was out in a in a firebase out in the middle of nowhere. Um, but that was technically the the headquarters for the Second Battalion, Seventh Marines. In the first two months, we just run out of this base, um, and it was literally the top of a hill blown off with some bunkers in it. And you know, and if if you know, you'd every night you'd sit out in the perimeter of that waiting for something to happen if you had what we called whole watch. If you were out on patrol, you got away from that. And again, that that was sort of where I was more comfortable was. So I I would, you know, pass up my whole my whole watch duty to go out and at least get out of there. And then that's what you did. Yeah, you you um, you went out and and you know s- searched around basically mm-hmm. what you were doing and looked for any of the activity. And I was I was never assigned. Uh, my goal was to get assigned to a to a force recon unit. They were in the middle of starting to pull out, um, and so I just kept getting attached to these different infantry uh, companies and platoons. Seventh Marines were in the process of pulling out of Vietnam. Big headlines back home. Essentially, <laughs> what that meant was the colors. And the officers went home and everybody else got transferred. Nebraska to the home, first Marines. Everybody else. Yeah. You just go yeah, someplace that was, else. That was, you know, but you see the headlines, you know. Yeah. And the Southern Marines withdrawal, you know, and like, and I'm sure that was a, a, a political move for sure. Know, yeah. At that point in time, but didn't really affect because this was still early on. I mean, they were, Marines were still there for five more years. Um, you know, they, they at a lot smaller scale. Um, but, you know, 1970, there, there didn't anybody pulling out. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, so there you are in a foreign country in the jungle. It's it's hot, it's wet. You don't know where the enemy is. You assume they're they could be all around you at any time. It just uh, and then you're being shot at regularly and things. You know, uh, it just sounds like uh, an incredible recipe for for trauma for anyone. Yeah, yeah. I think part of that. Um and I know some I, some psychologists would probably disagree with me, but I think again that stage of your life, I personally think you're able to handle that more, mm-hmm. um, and that's why I I really I really had sympathy, and I still do nowadays, you know, for all these uh, units that get deployed to the Middle East and that kind of thing that that are you know the average. The average person right now, I believe, in in the infantry, um, especially during the the uh, Gulf War, and in Afghanistan and Iraq, the average age was like mid to late twenties. Okay, so that meant probably that that you know they were already settled down. They probably had a family, you know, had jobs, all this stuff, right. and then were pulled from that and thrown into this mess. Um, versus me, basically being you know, unattached, yeah. you know, literally. And I think that's huge when it, when it comes to that, how you deal with that. You know, there's enough baggage over there when you're by yourself that you think about without having a family and kids and, you know, that. And I just, I can't imagine going through that yeah. with that, 
um, you know, being in that position. Well, and a, a lot of the brain science says that your, you know, your frontal lobe in particular isn't fully developed until you're in your mid twenties. Yeah. So I, th- I think there's probably something to that where it's a little more malleable and you're a little more able to process that, but also probably why you're, you're more susceptible to risk taking behavior and, oh, and no. more likely to put yourself in that kind of situation. Yeah, I, I agree. Totally. Totally. And it's not like, um, you know, you didn't even, well, once you got over there, um, you know, it it didn't matter. That's why we we never well we never heard a whole lot about it. Every once in a while, you'd you know you'd get a copy of the Stars and Stripes, which is the newspaper mm-hmm. that would work its way out, and it'd come with a mail or something, and and it'd get passed around. Um, and but we didn't know at the time that there were you know all the protesting, everything that was going. On. We didn't hear that much about that, mm-hmm. um, despite what you hear. Um, but even even when you did, yeah, it didn't you know? It just it it didn't bother you. I mean, you didn't you had you had made that choice. Um, now maybe different for for some guy that was drafted. Um, you know, I enlisted on my own. I I had I had nobody to blame but myself. Yeah. Um, so it might have been a, a, I'm, I guess I'm I'm speaking from the the point of view of someone that that enlisted, not mm-hmm. you know wasn't drafted. And believe it or not, there were a few of kids drafted into the Marine Corps. Most of the, almost all the drafting took place with the army. But mm-hmm. I, in fact, witnessed a couple guys when we were up in Minneapolis before we took, flew out getting sworn in and everybody was getting lined up and, you know, everybody gets sworn in together. There's a line over here that's army. There's a line here that's Navy. There's a line over here that's Marines. And I witnessed a couple uh uh, officers walk over into the army line, grab a couple guys and pull them over and put them in the Marine Corps line and say, you're going to be Marines now. No and, and they, you know, whether they had been drafted or not, or they just, boom, they went in through the line and got sworn in. I mean, wow. now that's, that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. So it, it really did depend on where you were at at the time mentally, mm-hmm. I think, and, and emotionally, you know, mm-hmm. but I agree totally. I, maybe, maybe that's good that, that we haven't, that the brain hadn't developed to the point where, you know, um, there was more concern there yeah. for yourself. But nevertheless, and and you address this in the book, that it is a traumatic experience, and especially some of the things that you went through and what, what ended your time in Vietnam, uh, that's a trauma that, that stays with you. Yeah, and that's that never changes, you know. Um, we didn't know at the time, uh, you know, even the, even the, Medical professionals at the time didn't really have a label for PTSD, um, and you know it's been around ever since <laughs> war. Yeah. Um, and I remember working the summer I before I went in. After I graduated, I worked at a dairy in Rochester, and um, it was really a bad job. It was a it was a it was a good paying job, and and I knew I was only going to be you know two and a half months, and then. Um, but it was a case where I worked in these, what they called the, the dryers mm-hmm. and milk would come in in these big bulk tank trucks from, from the farmers and it would get pumped up way up to the third floor of this big dairy building. And then literally the milk would come down through all these dryers and it would turn it to powder. Mm-hmm. It would, that's, and so my job was, uh, when the dryers were running, you'd, you'd, Two, two floors down, you're standing under there and you, you go get a big 
heavy, heavy, big paper bag like birdseed comes in or something okay. like that. Pull it under and put it under the chute and open it up and open the chute and 100 pounds of powder would come into that bad boy. And then you shut the chute off. You pick that up. You go over about 10 feet, lay it on a scale to make sure that it got right. And then there's a big scissors or uh, uh, sewing machine sort of thing Okay, that comes down and you zip sure. that across the top. And you pick it up and you go throw it on a pallet. And you do that eight hours. <sighs> Wow. And then during the downtime, you go out every like twice during the shift and you'd have to clean the inside of those dryers. Well, it was hot, super hot. And all, all it was, all the scorched powdered milk was on the side of these chutes and you'd have to go up with this big, look like a huge bottle brush and brush, clean all that powder out of there and you're sweating and it all yeah. stuck. I mean, so that <laughs> long full of powdered milk. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I wasn't that broke up when I left that job and yeah. went in the Marine Corps, believe me. Yeah. Me. Right. It was, uh, it was one, but there where I was going with that was there were guys that had been there for 25, 30 years doing that same wow. exact thing. And one of them, I don't honestly ever, I don't know if I ever knew his name, was shell shocked anyway, mm-hmm. from Korea. And I can remember guys really giving him a bad time every once in a while. And, and the joke was, you know, sp- you know, sneak up on him and, and yell at him from behind him, but don't get too close because he's going to swing around. Oh, and he always carried a hammer oh. in his tool pouch. And he'd swing around with that hammer it just as a reflex. Yeah. And it, but, I mean, it was a, a joke kind of a thing. And that obviously that was... PTSD for sure, but back then it was called shell shocked, and yeah. you know nobody knew how to handle it. Nobody, you know, so that part of it was was not good. But um, we've 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 evolved a lot since then, um, you know, relative to that whole. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more understanding of it, and and uh, and new treatment options that seem to be right rising now. Yeah, well. yeah. And that's just really recently, you know, in the last probably 20 years mm-hmm. where it's really come, it's really come to surface within the VA. Um, but within, a, um, you know, all the, all the research and everything now that's going on is, yep. is outstanding. Um, and it sounds like you sort of organically <clears throat> just through, through your upbringing and, and your, your family life and that, that sort of strength and structure of your family. Um, and then, um, and then through nature, you sort of, found your own path to to coming back from that yeah and, and i guess it's no surprise that it ended up being um outside yeah again, yep um be, because of the way i grew up but you know not i i guess my my whole point to that is not everybody has a luxury uh number one of growing up like that outside and being so comfortable with that environment um, there's, there's a lot of people that are never exposed to that. Mm-hmm. And even if, even if you were, uh, you know, not, not everybody clicks the same and, yeah. and what, you know, what made that, um, you know, what made it able for me to be able to adjust and sort of, um, you know, treat whatever that was that I, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes didn't even know what it was through nature um, was, I don't know, you know, is it luck? Is it, is it just the way you're kind of put together? Is it your upbringing? I think it's a combination of everything Yeah. myself. Um, you know, it's just kind of the way we're built, I guess. But, um, because there was not a lot of clinical help at the time in the 70s, you know, we're talking seventies now and eighties mm-hmm. and, and, you know, it, it, you know, 
obviously it's the rest of your life, but seventies and eighties, there was, you know, all these Vietnam vets were, were back and it was still pretty, an unknown, you know, uh, field that, that hadn't, you know, really finally the VA got kind of pushed into it. Um, but it, but it was still pretty, uh, you know, pretty scary because, you know, you, you were, you were there and you didn't relate to anybody else that, that wasn't there. Um, and so you, obviously you can't blame anybody. And even the people that were probably trying to help you at the time had no clue right. ver- versus nowadays, you know, I mean it, so the whole thing sometimes that was even more frustrating than, than not getting help, yeah. you know, from, from the institutions and that sort of thing. And, and um, yeah, slowly at first, but, but over time, um, yeah, that, that was my escape. It be, you know, I was, I was back, um, jumping back into that realm of safety and, and security and familiarity that, that I had grown up in. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I, there's, there's no doubt in my mind if, had I not, and it was obviously it wasn't all hunting, but had I not had that experience and hunting had a huge part of keeping me out you know, at the time when I was younger and getting me out there, probably first introducing me to it. Um, yeah. I'm, you know, who knows what, what, what path you take. Yeah. Yeah. And so I know just the, the overall experience of just being there, of being in combat for, you know, as long as you were, and then how it ended um, in, as I said, reading through this book, your book, the second time uh, I was again, really struck by your ability to articulate the experiences that you had there, and in particular that that final ambush that ended your time in Vietnam. That's a, um, you know, it, it, in a lot of ways, you know, in, you know, some days it seems like it was yesterday, yeah, and other days it seems like it never happened. And I think that's the that's the beauty I think of of the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it it. It can be dangerous because you know you, you you can't tuck that stuff away mm-hmm. and not deal with it. But it also has a a way of of cushioning it, um, and in making it much more palatable than than uh, if it was every day. And you know, and for a long time afterwards, it is every day. And there, yeah. you know, I I you know as much as as the wild and nature and the wilderness and everything really really brought me back. For a while, when I got back, I didn't feel comfortable, you know, out in the woods or anything like that because mm-hmm. because it was too recent that, you know, I you know, if I was walking down a path or something, all of a sudden the security of that is is gone now, and you you know it's not any different than walking down a trail and, and walking point in Vietnam or something. Right. And that took a long. That was probably the biggest adjustment and the in the biggest the hardest thing was here is this. Um, this super emotional uh, love of being outside and all of a sudden that's ripped away from you and it becomes almost the opposite that that almost becomes you know your enemy and and ultimately ends up being your probably your salvation but so it wasn't overnight for sure and then it just takes time you know it just took a lot of time and and then slowly that came back and 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 then you realize that wow yeah this is it when you know when when you feel like that um, and you're frustrated and you don't know what to do with bam boom there's your escape mm-hmm. um, and you know it doesn't work for everybody but it certainly that that certainly worked for me 
Yeah. Well, it sounds like you were very fortunate to have that and have that that strong love of being in the outdoors. And and uh, I know you talk about you know coming back from Vietnam and your your healing process from being pretty seriously injured. Um, to then starting a family and going to college and, and moving towards that dream you had of being a game warden. Yep. Yeah. Um, college was, you know, I, and I've said before, man, I wish I could go through college again. You know, I, <laughs> I just, I just wanted to get done so fast. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't remember hardly anything about college. I mean, I remember that, you know, but I don't have any great memories of college, um, because I just, I just, that was one thing that was in my way and I knew I had to do it and I wanted to do it, but, um, I, I, you know, I, I didn't do anything on campus. I didn't, you know, first two years I went to a junior college in Rochester mm-hmm. and then I went transferred over to Wisconsin to, to Stevens Point and it was a great campus, great school. Um, they had just moved all their natural resource stuff from Madison, um, to the new part of the campus in Stevens Point. So, God, the College of Natural Resources it was all brand new buildings, and it was really nice. But it just, you know, at that point in time, you're still so raw. Yeah. Um, and then, and I was married um, in college, already had two kids, and and so that's sort of added, you know, uh, I don't know if pressure is the right word, but you so you're kind of dealing with things on multiple multiple levels and then trying to get through. I, I got through school in four and a half years and, um, it was, you know, I, I was taking 20, 21 credits a semester wow. just, just to get done. And, and to do that with two small children at home, that kids. is no easy feat. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but that again, I guess you look back at it and at the time, I don't know, if, um, you know, that's what it was. That's mm-hmm. the way it was. Yeah. And so um, you talk about in the book that you uh, were right on the verge of, of getting a job as a game warden. Yeah. Um, probably since third or fourth grade, that was it. And I, I still don't really know how that um, got, how that seed got in my head. Well, I kind of do, but um, that's, a, that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just had wanted to be a game warden for, for a long time and... Um, the plan, like I said before, was, all right, I'm going to get out of school. I'm going to go in the military. I'm going to get military background. I'm going to come back, go to college. Wouldn't have had to, but I just figured all of this is going to just really be one more guarantee that I'm going to end up, you know, where I want to end up. Um, went through school my senior year, um, the Minnesota DNR was going to hire two candidates for game ward. And, um, that at the time, that uh, you know, they weren't hiring like they are now. They have they run candidates fifteen twenty at a time now. And, but there was a freeze on hiring, and then when that opened up a little bit, that was just as the Equal Opportunities Act mm-hmm. came through and mandated all these hiring restrictions and everything. And and I remember one um, when I went in and the first step of applying was a written test. And when I went in, I had to come back to St. Paul in the old armory in St. Paul and write and do the test. And I was in there and I was handing that test back in. And uh, the lady that was there, and I, I don't honestly even know if if she was state or what, but she kind of kind of looked at me and and smiled or something and said, um, "I wouldn't something like I wouldn't count on this a whole lot, 
son, if I was you, mm-hmm. and I kind of stopped and kind of, <laughs> you know, looked at him, you know, <laughs> like, what, what what does that mean? How about you a know? little optimism <laughs> yeah. <here>? come on. <laughs> and she said, um, you know, you're a white male yeah. and the lodge has changed. And, and I don't mean this to be again, derogatory at all, but the chances in 1975 of, of a white male getting hired in a government job were pretty slim sure. and um, they had no choice in it. They had to meet these quotas. Right, and, right. Um, and you know, I hadn't even, I hadn't even thought about that. So I was just like totally bummed all the way back to yeah. Stephen's point. You know, I'm like, oh man. Well, then I just, you know, over the course of the next couple of months, I, I kept making these cuts and, and there were interviews and there were more tests and there was, a, there was literally one, uh, a field day where you went and back at that armory and you ran obstacle courses and all this stuff. And it was, it was crazy. All the, the hoops you had to jump through. And I just kept lucking out and, and getting by each step. And anyway, I finally got down to the top 10, got called back for a board interview. And um, about two weeks after that, I, I got a call and, and I w- was one of the two right. um, that were, uh, you know, selected to be candidates that year. And, and so they, they right away made an appointment <clears throat> to meet um, the guy that was going to be my training officer back at mom and dad's farm. So I came back and met him and, and uh, we had a long visit and he, I was so close. They wanted me to finish school. They wanted mm-hmm. me, I was in the last semester and they wanted me to graduate and, and they were willing to wait. And, and um, we sat there at the kitchen table for probably an hour and a half, two hours. And he got up and he finally went out and he, I, I remember him standing in the, you know, the, the pantry of the old farmhouse always has the porch, you know, and he's putting his coat and stuff on. And, and um, I'm standing in the doorway and he turns around and he's reaching for his coat. And I said, um, you know, for a while, I thought maybe my eye would, you know, would keep me out of it. And I, and I still can see his arm stopping at the coat hook and he's pulling his arm down. He turned around and he said, what do you mean your eye? And I said, well, I, you know, I lost one of my eyes in Vietnam. I said, this is, you know, it's a fake eye. And he just looked at me and he said, you got to be kidding and so he comes back in and we sit down at the table and he just, he said, how did that, how did they not catch that or something? And you did, you had physicals. Mm-hmm. You had, I even remember having an eye exam, but what the eye exam was, you looked into a stereoscope and they never isolated one eye. Yeah, isolated one. So they never oh. caught it. And wow. I had super good vision in my good eye. Yeah. So they never caught the part, you know, they never did a, you know, cover one eye up and, you know. Oh, unreal. And passed all the tests, passed all the physicals, and he. So he said, "That's yeah, you know, that's just not right." He said, "You you you met all the criteria, you know." And so he said he was going to go to bat, and I think he really did. I, mm-hmm. I honestly did, but it was a law enforcement job. Yeah, it was just a flat, absolutely not. Which I find out like two days later, you know. And so that was tough. That brutal. That was brutal, and that was probably the hardest thing I had ever had to kind of adjust to after that because I had just I had. For 15 years, you know, that's, that was what, that's why I went to the Marine Corps. Yeah. You know? uh, so that was a tough one. Yeah, that was tough. So you still, so obviously you, you came back from that and you found a different way to sort of make a living through the outdoors, through the wilderness. Yeah, I eventually, yeah, I, I came back, um, right after that, um, 
and my in-laws um, had a contracting firm in Rochester, and they had been after me to come back and you know and join them, and they were expanding, and you know I just you know I just that wasn't me, you know. Mm-hmm. I just, well, now it's like I didn't know what the heck I was going to do, so I that's what I did. I came back and joined that company. I was actually in that company for um, for thirteen years uh, before we you know before I finally realized all right if I'm ever going to do something outside and get back to somewhat remotely connected to conservation, then I need to do it. And, and that's when I, for about a year, I started looking around and Ely had always been, you know, I had come up here with the scouts, like mm-hmm. a lot of people. And I think that was my, but I had also gone up to Gunflint. And so the two places were, were either going to be Ely or up the Gunflint. Um, and I just started looking at resorts and, um, yeah, made, made an offer in 19, in December, 1990. And, and um, came up in March of '91 to Northern Air, and that that was the first step in kind of getting back to to where I thought I was going to be, you know, 15 years before that. So. Yeah, well, it's fun reading about your first experience up there, about driving out the road. Uh, is it Hopala Road? Yeah, and yeah. Getting, getting as far as the plow went before yeah. it turned around, and then exactly. having to to hike in through the snow. I post holed in, yeah. and um, you know, nothing was. Uh, there was no gate, and and. Uh, you know, nothing was locked and I was going to meet a realtor there and then he got snowbound or something. He was going to come from Brainerd. Then I went, I was already up in town, you know, and, and so I just went out there and, and walked in and, um, middle of, it was like probably early December. Mm -hmm. Um, because I came right, I came right back and, and made an offer on it. But, um, yeah. So the, the funny part of that was as, as taken in as I was by that place at the time in the dead of winter, <laughs> you know, I never saw the lake open until four months after I bought the place. You, you didn't know, know if it was a two foot <laughs> yeah, swamp. I had no, I had no clue what Mitchell Lake looked like yeah. in the summer. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a lake map and that kind of stuff, but I, um, lo and behold, it's a beautiful lake. Yeah, it is. And I'll never forget that, you know, late March, uh, I think, I think it was relatively late that year when, when it finally opened up and, you know, I'd, I'd walk down to the dock and it'd be getting darker and darker and darker. And I'm like, come on, come on. And, and I'll never forget that first day I went down there and it had opened up overnight, you know, and I'm like, holy crap, this is, you know, here we are. Yeah. Um, so that, that part of that, uh, you know, it, it, it was one of those deals. I, I had looked at three or four places and, and by the minute I even walking in there, you just had that feeling mm-hmm. that, you know, this might've been, you know, this is kind of what you're looking for right now. And, um, and it was, yeah, for That's sure. Great. And so then running a resort that it sounds like your, uh, your upbringing on the farm and learning those farm chores was a sort of good launching pad for you to running a resort. Oh, yeah. It's people, just nonstop. Yeah. And, and, you know, people just say, ah, it's a work farm. It's a work farm. And it was a piece of cake. Yeah. I had come from a, a very busy and a, a, a real successful mechanical contracting company. And mm-hmm. we were busy, 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 which is good. But, you know, we used to say, you know, great money, no life, one of those. <laughs> yeah. And you didn't. You were busy. I mean, you were either getting work or you were bidding work or you're running work. And, and um, uh, I, I had come from that to, you know, to just the environment of where you were. And, you know, there was at the time there were 17 cabins there in the lodge and stuff. But every day was just like a holiday. Yeah. It was 
uh, you were you were there. You're on your own. You're you know that uh, Heather and I weren't even married yet. We didn't get married till that next December. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just I was up there, and in the summer, uh, my kids came up, and um, Heather's sister came up the first summer because she was going to Eau Claire, and so we just had kind of friends and family kind of helping out those first couple summers, and and uh, until Heather. And I got married in December and then she moved up. And that was more of a rude awakening for Heather than it was me because yeah. she had never lived outside of town, you know, in her oh old boy. life. <laughs> lived in Rochester and she was born in New York, but she, you know, lived in Rochester most of her life. And, and, you know, she used to say she was, she was afraid to run from her neighbor's house to her house after dark because there were trees. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and they'd creep her out. Wow. So that's a um, big adjustment. It was a huge adjustment. And man, it didn't take long. Yeah. yeah. You know, she fell in love with it almost as fast as I did. So yeah. it, was, it was meant to be, I think. Yeah. That's what that tells me. So how long did you own Northern Air? We were out there. Um, we sold in 96 then. Um, okay. Yeah, 96. That's, that seems like a long time ago. Yeah. So we were there six years. Okay. And we were open year-round. You know, we cut way back in the winter. Mm-hmm. And the first two years, we had the restaurant also. Yeah. That's when um, the former owners had had built on and opened that the rendezvous room. Okay, and um, so we had a bar and restaurant as well as the the cabins. That's a lot. That was a zoo. Yeah, um, and you know you 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 can't afford to hire a lot of help. And, For sure. And so it was one of those deals where, you know, I was the uh, you know chief cook and bottle washer. And, yep. And uh, the the problem was. And I think it's still the fact that if, if if you have a bar on site, but you also have lodging, there are no mandatory closing hours oh, okay. to, to the bar because there's and I don't know if that's still any a, a deal now or not, but it was back then. And so, you know, here's your clients, your guests that are staying in the cabins. Well, they're on vacation. You know, they're coming up and they're they go out and it gets dark. They come in off the lake and they want to sit in the bar for three, four hours. Right. And you know, you've you've done you everything all day long. And I just want to go to bed. <laughs> and you know, and Heather's in the same boat. Yeah. And but those are again, those are your guests. And so you're catering to those people till, you know, midnight, one o'clock, one thirty, depending on the group, maybe later than that. Yeah. And then boom, somebody's knocking on the door at five o'clock for bait, you know, oh, the next boy. So that's brutal. Yeah. That part no was kidding. brutal. And so it didn't take us very long till we we kind of looked at each other and said, Okay, one of these has gotta go. You know, are are we in the restaurant business or are we in the resort business? And and we just decided, yeah, let's just we close the resort or uh, close the restaurant mm-hmm. bar, and just concentrated on the line. That was probably the best choice we'd. Yeah, we wouldn't have made it, man. That was tough. It was. That is a lot. You were just burning up. Oh gosh, yeah, we'd have been burned out in two years. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, but it was uh, it was enough of an enticement for your son Mike that he wanted to <laughs> to bring <laughs> yeah. his wife Sarah here. You and, know, and had I resort. known, yeah, <laughs> back then, um, that it wouldn't. What was he then? Like seven or something? Yeah. you know, at the time that that he would have ended up there for twelve years, yeah, managing the place. It, it might have it might have made us hang on a little longer, but uh, we, you know, we it it's it's a great. Um, it's a great lifestyle. Um, it, it reminded me a lot of farming. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to, to other resort owners about that. There's a lot of similarities between the resort business and farming. And, and, and you, you know, you have all this equity in the land mm-hmm. and that's where the value is. Mm-hmm. It's not in the business. It's, yeah. it's the land and the same with farming. And the only time you really make any money is when you sell it, mm-hmm. unfortunately. 
Yeah. And, you know, as we can see from the last 20 years, that's the way it's gone. And, and, and that, or, you know, selling off the cabins one by one and one by one. And, and, uh, it, it, it really makes me sad that, you know, boy, even compared to what, how many resorts there were when we were out at Northern air, you know, there's, there's just a handful left. Yeah. And that's sad. You know, you're, you're the days of the, the old Ma Pa resorts are gone and, yeah. and it's, uh, that's a sad, that's a sad part of history up here, I think. And, mm-hmm. and it'll never come back, you know, just, just the way the economics are. But you were able to, uh, find a, find a piece of land pretty much right next to the resort. Yeah, we lucked out. It wasn't ever, uh, it was never part of the resort, but we lucked out and, and got, a, uh, bought a piece of property right next, literally next door in the next bay over after we had sold and moved off for about almost a year. Um, um, and that it was property that, that lefty Genexla had owned. Um, he lived in town, but he had that property and he'd had it for a long time and, um, had an old trailer out there and, and, but, but I knew it, it was in the back bay and I knew the property and everything. And we had gotten to know lefty, um, while we were at the lodge, not real well, but got to know him and, and we had moved off and we were living on a little hobby farm between Babbitt and Barris, which was cool for me because here I am back on back back on a little farm, but yep. we wanted we wanted to be on a lake after living at Northern Air, and but the problem was we were so spoiled with the privacy part of that. Yeah, there's place. no public access. On there's Mitchell. no public access yeah. on Mitchell, and and most of it's federal shoreline, so yep. it's not really built up, and and that's that's what we had become comfortable with, and so every piece of lake property that we went and looked at. You know, there was a cabin 100 feet away on both sides, and it just wasn't. So we were just content to wait. And, and then Lefty called called up one night out of the blue, and he had talked to to Grant and Kathy, mm-hmm. who had bought the resort from us, about it. And and um, they they were going to pass on it and told him to call us. And, and uh, so he did. And I I bought it over the phone. I mean, because wow. we already knew the You problem. knew it, yeah. 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 Um, and then we moved back. Uh, my kids give me a bad time about that or a funny time about that. We, we moved back into the trailer on, <laughs> on, uh, and, and the first few years of my college days, I had lived in a trailer, right, right. you know, and Same so they were circle. like, boy, dad, you've gone full circle. You know, <laughs> you, you, you've gone Not through generally how you want to do yeah, it. But, kinda, yeah. Uh, so, but that was, it was perfect because we, we lived, uh, for almost a year on the site then on, and it allowed us time to, to decide where we wanted to put a house and that yeah. kind of thing. And, and then at that point in time was when, um, the job opportunity for the nature conservancy mm-hmm. in Colorado came up and I jumped at that and, and we were able to just keep the property and then move out to Colorado for those four years. That's great. And, um, keep, you know, keep that. And then when we came back, we, we built, um, that's you know over thirty years ago now. It doesn't say we built. We've been in the house eighteen years. Okay, it's crazy. Well, and it's yeah, like you said, it's a you know it's a beautiful piece of property. It's Mitchell's a beautiful lake, and uh, I really enjoy seeing your your trail cam pictures and seeing the wildlife out there. I've made guest appearances on the trail cam <laughs> yeah, pictures from time right. to time yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, by invitation, of course. Yes. Um, but uh, it's uh, what a what a great feeling to be able to have that slice of land that's that's yours that is in this wilderness that it seems like is so much of what defines you. Yeah, it it um, and I said that a little while ago. I said you know the the minute I walked out there 
I knew it, mm-hmm. you know, that, that that's, that's where I was going to be. That's where I was meant to be. And, and yeah, so the last, um, you know, the last 15 years after we came back from Colorado, well, it's 20 years since we came back from Colorado, but, but since 1991, basically, um, you know, we've been there, um, and it just, I can't, you know, I can't, it's, we've been there long enough. Now it's home. You know, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't even, I don't even consider Rochester home anymore. Yeah. You know, it's, yep. I have good memories of Rochester, but, um, this is, I think this is, this is what was meant to be, you know, we're lucky. We're really, really lucky that, you know, it turned out that way. Well, and it's a, it's a special community here. Um, there's, you know, I've, I've made so many close connections here in this town that I can't imagine living anywhere else. No, me either. Uh, just so many good people and, and to have that wild space. And, uh, you talk a lot about, uh, in your book, you talk a lot about, you know, your work with the nature conservancy and, and having that understanding of, of ecology and, and the need for those wild places in the world. That's, um, yeah, that, that's my, that's my, uh, flag now. Mm-hmm. Um, partially because I, I know what it did for me and how it helped me, but, um, it just, and then when I had a chance to really dive into, to the science part of it, which was, you know, which was always there, um, because my, degree was natural resource biology and, and, but then I had gotten away for, for a while, you know, and then the minute I hit Northern air, I knew that, uh, you know, that this is a stepping stone back into, to where I wanted to be originally. Um, and then I was just really fortunate to, to be able to get the opportunity to, uh, to work for the nature conservancy out in Colorado. And that was a sort of an experimental deal for them. They had, um, they had for years been trying to purchase uh, one of these big ranches out in the San Luis Valley of Colorado, which is way south, mm-hmm. um, over the front range between the Sangre de Cristos and the San Juan Mountains. And um, they were in Colorado um, real heavy up north in the in the metro area in Denver and Boulder and in the ski areas and everything, doing conservation easements and that sort of thing. But they had just gradually worked down. And the threat, it was interesting because the threat in this valley – it was an agricultural valley, um, a lot of barley. All the barley that that Coors mm, bought right. came yep. was most of that was grown right in that valley, and um, potatoes, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is odd because I I came to learn that there was more potatoes grown in the San Luis Valley, of Colorado, than there is in Idaho. No kidding. Which is you know just tuck Pretty that funny. away. Huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> a little trivia for Go you. figure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so it was an it was it was this combination of ag and in a totally unique environment. It was it was high desert, about eight thousand feet, and it was desert. There was sage and and uh, rabbit brush and greasewood and and but it, there were interdunal wetlands, what they called interdunal wetlands, and there was sand dunes. In fact, the sand dunes, the Great Sand Dunes National Park, yep. borders that ranch, and part of that park, uh, uh, we were instrumental in that going from a monument to a national park while we were out there. Um, and so this bizarre landscape of from a guy that came from woods and water to high desert sand dunes, yeah. and yet you crest a dune and you look down and here's this wetland just yeah. out in the middle. It, it was the most bizarre environment you've ever seen. And because of this huge underground aquifer mm-hmm. that was there, and as good as that was for the ag community, and they pumped out of it and it all kept 
you know, all the runoff each spring from the mountains would recharge the aquifer. And, and between that and, and the wetlands, it would recharge the wetlands. Well, the, the problem was that industry also saw that aquifer. And what was happening to these ranches is they were being bought out by large corporations from the West Coast purely for water rights. Oh, wow. And they were pumping the water to the front range Oof. because the front range was expanding so fast. Yep. Um, and so obviously that threatened the, the everything, Throws the egg community, yep. the, the environmental community, because those, those aquifers can only get pumped down so far. Um, and if they don't get recharged. They, so that was sort of the, the reason why they were there, while the Nature Conservancy was there. And so when we went out there, they had just bought a 103,000-acre ranch um, after a huge capital campaign. And there was a working cattle and bison ranch. And they, they don't mix. Don't, yeah, don't yeah. get me wrong. Right. Um, but the, the southern half of the ranch, about 30,000 acres of the ranch, was, was a working cattle farm. Um, ran about 1,500 head of, of Red Angus. And the whole northern part of the ranch was a free-range bison. Mm. Um, you know, not, not fenced, not anything. They were... It was a free rate. It's a herd of about two thousand bison, and the, and part of the part of it was an experiment to to see how in that dry environment the effects of cattle grazing versus bison grazing, mm-hmm. and and nobody had ever really done that, mm-hmm. and, and it was pretty obvious as you can imagine that the different effects of of, of those two herds. But um, and then they started an environmental education facility in the the ranch buildings that had been restored by the previous owner. And so it was just this combination of science, egg, uh, um, wilderness, education, everything that, that uh, that's what I was. That's yeah. who I was. And, yeah. and uh, so because of everything I had done in the past, I, I fit that, I just, you know, fit the bill perfect. And, and so we went out there, uh, they put us up, we lived around the ranch, they furnished us housing and everything. And, and, um, we, we really got that up and running and, we knew we'd come back to Minnesota because there was no way we we didn't miss Ely. You know, I mean, we did. Yeah. And um, after a while, what happens is I I miss the green. Yeah. You know the the and you know we don't have any idea about water rights, and the West lives and breathes on water rights, and that was that was a total foreign thing to me. And I'm sure. And there's a steep learning curve very fast with with Western water rights, but uh, the woods and the water. Is is why I really really miss. Kept you coming back. Yeah, and so we knew. You know, the goal was to go out, get this up and running, and get it established and everything, and then come back to Ely. So that's what we did. Four years later, we then we came back and and then we built on Mitchell. Nice. Um, moved out of the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> Upgrade. Upgraded. Yeah. And so you were you worked for the Trust for Public Land. When you're uh, back here in Ely? No, I worked for Minnesota Land Trust. Actually. Oh, Minnesota Land Trust. We worked Trust. a lot with the Trust for Public Land. Okay. With the Land Trust, um, I just, uh, again, it's it's all about timing. Um, when I came, when we moved back, um, the Minnesota Land Trust was just expanding. They had started in, in the Twin Cities area um, along the St. Croix and along the Mississippi, and, I, and they had expanded into a statewide land trust. And so they were looking for a director for the northern region. Mm-hmm. And at that point in time, the northern region to the land trust was everything from Pine County to the north. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so I, I – uh, and they were doing – essentially kind of doing what I was doing with the Nature Conservancy is, is they were working with private landowners and agencies and partners in um, uh, both habitat management, conservation easements, management plans, and that kind of thing, which is 
basically what we did out in Colorado. So I walked right into that. Um, again, it's all, all about timing. Yeah. And my, and my deal with the land trust was they had an office in Duluth at the time. Um, and I would take that office, but then within a year, they would let me open an office in Ely. Yeah. It's just what literally to the day, <laughs> that's wild. when I came up and that's great. Um, opened the first, uh, we were right on, well, we're with a little A-frame right on Sheridan Street. Yep. Um, yep. That's, that was the first office up here for, and then we moved into Queen City building, but that's a lot. And then I worked with them until I retired. Yeah. Yeah. Drove all over Northern Minnesota doing, doing pl management plans and easements and working with a lot of sportsmen's groups, Ducks Unlimited, Presence Forever down south. And it was again, a great job. I absolutely yeah. really, really, really enjoyed it. Um, and then I find, you know, I got to the point where I just decided, okay, I could do this forever, but you know, I, I want to retire and have some time while I'm still physically yeah. able to, yep. to do the things that I like to do. And that was really the only reason that I retired that, um, and they're still very active. In fact, they've. Um, I think we had a staff of twelve at the time, and I think the land, the Lantos is over thirty people right now. So, okay. which is great, which is really, because they really do some good things. Well, I know when you first came on my radar, I became aware of who you were was through my father-in-law at the time, my my kid's grandfather, Jim yes. Brandenburg. Yep. Um, and yep. working with with his piece of land. Yep. Uh, out near Moose Lake. Uh, out in Ravenwood. Yes. And uh, under the land trust now, it's uh, it's such a great feeling to be able mm -hmm. to go out to this beautiful piece of wilderness out there and know that it's going to remain this wild space basically in perpetuity. Right. And no matter who owns it. Yeah. That's the key. And that's that's probably the that's probably the hardest that was always the hardest thing for us to communicate in the land trust to to the public was um yes, a conservation easement protects the property and it it will have um certain restrictions on it and everything but but they're a you know they're a compromise between the land trust and the landowner and it's essentially how the landowner wants to see that property used in the future mm -hmm. and the fact that the easement is put on the property doesn't mean it's public land it doesn't mean that it you know nobody can go there it doesn't mean everyone is different every easement's written different mm -hmm. and um and so the beauty of that is 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 they're tailored to to both the landowner and yet the reason everybody loves that property, those values, those conservation values, as we call them, are protected in perpetuity. And, and so it's kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah. Well, and you articulate it really well late in your book, that idea of compromise and the idea of yeah. whether you're a hunter or a non-hunter, um, you know, whether you like to, to ride a mountain bike or an ATV or ski or snowmobile, yeah. that there's an importance in these wild spaces that is ubiquitous for everyone. Um, and, it, and it's just going to be more and more and more important, you know, as, as these crazy, as our crazy lives get more complicated. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in that. And the, the challenge there is, uh, you know, getting people to make that connection. And that's the that's the hard part because sometimes it comes naturally in my case, but mm -hmm. there are there are other cases where you know especially kids aren't aren't 
aren't connected to that because they have no exposure to it at all. And, you know, it's a little different up here. Yeah. You know, these kids are fortunate, you know, they, they, they live in it. Yep. Um, but you know, you start talking some of these Metro areas, uh, and where these kids, you know, don't, they don't, you know, they've never seen a forest. They, yeah. they, you know, they, they've never seen a deer that, you know, and it's awful hard as they mature and become adults for them to connect to any of this and you know what preservation means nothing to them because they've never been exposed to what we're trying to preserve you know yeah. to what we're uh, and it doesn't mean putting a gate around it and locking it and keeping people out and that's the other misconception that it it means multiple use mm -hmm. um and and yet being wise about protecting it so you know so it can continue to be multiple use for future generations that's my that's kind of my battle right now is is we need to get just we need to expose people to this in in all various forms and i i was lucky enough to to talk to um i, I gave a keynote to the round table the dnr's round table last june and and that that topic was um the future of conservation and and so that was a really easy one to to kind of key in on. it you know it's a lot of things but boy the number one is the youth um, because none of the you don't need conservation if people don't know what conservation is, right? Or the, or don't see a need for it, or um, and and um, so that's sort of, um, you know that that's kind of where I was coming from in the end of the book. There is is um, bet between that and and that's after realizing all the values of the of of the wild and the wilderness and nature and everything that that were valuable to me and valuable to, to anybody that's had any sort of traumatic, you know, we're, it doesn't have to be, you know, combat vets. It, 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 trauma is trauma. Yeah. Um, and, and so that I'm, I'm hoping that's the, the, the takeaway of that book is, um, you know, there are ways to, to, to lose those demons temper. You're never going to get rid of them, but you know, to deal with it and, and mellow that whole situation out and, and, uh, and one of the good ways is is yeah find your place find your find your little place to go out and be by yourself and it can be a a, a half a block of green space in the middle of downtown St Paul mm -hmm. doesn't have to be the Superior National Forest or it doesn't have to be the Rocky Mountains um, because if if you've never experienced it then any any of that is 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 going to be that space yeah you know that uh, you know now it's cliche but you know twenty years ago. Uh, we used to call it the sense of place, you know, mm -hmm. and now it's overused probably, mm -hmm. but, but there's a lot to that, just that sense of place and everybody's sense of place is different. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but it's so needed that, um, you know, we, we, we'd have to realize that. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I appreciate your book and, and your thoughts for sort of helping to resharpen my focus on that, on the, the value in these wild spaces. And that really, that's why, that's why I'm here. Uh, because I have those spaces because I can, you know, five minutes from my front door be in a place where I feel like I'm completely alone yep. and yeah. you're completely in the wilderness. And, and it's all about perspective, but we're very fortunate to be in the superior national forest oh, and, unbelievably. and then have a community like Ely to, to sort of center ourselves around. Right. Right. Yep.
it it um and you you know you have to you have to pinch yourself because you know the you don't want to take it for granted and it's really easy to take it for granted and and I think I I think I I remind myself that every day for a lot of reasons that you know you don't take life for granted yeah. to say anything about you know taking where you live for granted but um I I you know it's all about appreciating where you are mm-hmm. and and um I think Ely does a really good job of of that. And yeah, there's there's some differences here and there, but I you know, overall it's a small town and all small towns have those and and but I think um there's a reason why people live here. Yeah. And there's a there's a reason why people want to st- see it stay the way it is and and or you wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. You know, that the, the it's the way it is because that's the way that most of the people who live here want it to be, yeah. you know. Um so it's it's uh, you know, it's not any different. My my older brother taught his whole career in Spooner, Wisconsin, and mm-hmm. Spooner is a small town, and yep. and um, they have the same issues, yep. you know, that that any small town does, but they don't have the luxury of being in where we are. Yeah, you know, one of the biggest wilderness areas in the country. Yeah, we're very fortunate to be here. Well, I am so grateful for you taking the time to share your story with us. Uh, I'm grateful for your book. It's called Combat to Conservation. It's a Marine's journey through darkness into nature's light. And, of course, you can get it anywhere you get books. Yep, yep. You can get it here in Ely at the Paragus Bookstore. Yep. Talk to Jordan there. She'll get you a copy of it. And uh, any any parting thoughts? No, hey, I really appreciate the, you know, the chance, Brett. This was this was awesome. It was fun. Um and I'm I'm I, I'm just starting the kind of the follow up to that now. I finally sat down and I've started the number two. So excellent. I really I um I never really thought I'd enjoy it as much as I did. And and I, I tell people that you know that book had been in my head for thirty years. I bet. Yeah. And and the part of it was I th- the reason I started I think was selfish. I think I was basically started to do it as therapy yeah. for myself, just to write it down. Absolutely. You know? And then for my kids, just to I would love to have, you know, a a, a memoir of my dad, mm-hmm. you know. And so those were the but then the more I got into it, the more I realized that that the real the real reason was probably not either one of those. It, it was that it needs to be said and it needs to be taught and and you know, people that that have had traumatic experiences do have options out there and and um, and it's just one one of those cases where I hope it um, you know might help somebody. I I don't doubt it. I feel like you've accomplished all of those things really well, and I'll look forward to reading the next one. I appreciate it, man. Thanks so much, Fitz. It's been uh, really great talking with you, Francis Fitzgerald. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Brett. Well, I really hope you enjoyed this show as much as I enjoyed talking with Fitz. What uh, what a one-of-a-kind awesome guy. I've, I feel very lucky to know him. Big thanks to Francis Fitzgerald. Uh, be sure to subscribe and give us a warm, loving review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And thanks again to the Ely Tourism Bureau for supporting the show. A reminder, you can share your feedback by emailing tourism at ely.org. Follow on Facebook and Instagram at Visit EliMN and on the internet at ely.org. Also, thanks to my friends from the band Waffle House Melee for recording our theme music. They will actually be playing on the main stage at Ely's Historic State Theater as part of the End of the Road Film Festival on February 11th. And finally, 
Check out the fun new podcast I'm producing with Lacey Squire called What's Up Ely. You'll find it wherever you get this show, and it's full of all the fantastic happenings in my favorite little town in the world. Until next time, I'm Brett Ross. Be well, my friends. Thank you.